rich top Tennessee in 1973. The brown boys killed String Bean and Estelle. And the reason for it all was in the bib of his overalls. At least that's what the brown boys would tell. It seemed like easy money But things didn't go their way It was just a simple plan To rob a banjo man But he would not let go of his opry pay There must have been one hell of a struggle For the cash in his bill overalls The brown boys said don't give us no trouble strength They said we came for some but now we want it all Yeah the thieves said stand and deliver but string bean would not tell And later we would learn That was the point of no return They shot him dead and then they shot his still see no smoke from the chimney Grandpa knew that something was not right And now it's burned evermore in his memory The picture of that dreadful awful sight But then 23 years later They told $20,000 that the brown boys never found. Yeah, it seemed like easy money, but things didn't go their way. It was just a simple plan to rob a banjo man. But he would not let go of his opry pay. No, he would not let go of his opry pay. Now I ask you, is anything sacred? I do believe that I have heard it all. I read it in this morning's paper They auctioned off old strings overall The Ballad of 
Streambean and Estelle, that is Vernon Thompson, a song written uh, about the death of Streambean. And I have on the line with me now Taylor Haygood, author of Streambean, The Life and Murder of a Country Music Legend. And Taylor, thank you so much for coming by and sharing your knowledge of Streambean with everybody. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to me to be on this program. Absolutely love it and appreciate you and everything you do. And uh, I, I grew up, uh, both of my parents, uh, big roots music fans, big folk music fans uh, generally. And uh, so it's, this is just an honor for me. Well, you uh, just a little bit about you. You're a professor in the Department of English at Florida Atlantic University. You've written a number of other books, including Faulkner, Writer of Disability and Secrecy, uh, and Magic, and the one-act plays of Harlem Renaissance women writers. This seems to be a left turn from you, uh, writing a book about, you don't use the word clown, but String Bean dressed, he, he kind of reminds me of of an of a early clown. And so how, why did you take this turn to write about String Bean? Well, absolutely. In fact, uh, I mean, in a way, he kind of is a Poirot figure. He kind of comes out of that sad clown background. And uh, I guess in a way, that's kind of a connection for Faulkner, who some wrote about Poirot a little bit in his early career. But really, I was interested in music, roots music. Uh, I was playing the banjo when I was about 12 years old. My dad played in a folk group up in Nashville uh, when he was uh, in college. So I really grew up around music a lot. And that was what I was kind of into early on before I started working on Faulkner, even though I, I had some family connection with that also. But my dad, speaking of whom again, I uh, had written a play on the old Colonel Faulkner. But uh, long before I got interested in literary studies, I, I was interested in music and I had seen a picture of String Bean as a kid. And I could not figure out that anatomy, <laughs> that long torso and those little short legs and so that had kind of stuck with me so that's kind of the interest the interest that i had and really the opportunity to write about this music for me was very much the heart of the book and to write about the the life of this person who who was very fascinating who who kind of appeared in different places i guess musically speaking and in terms of performance as you say he is very much a clown figure and I, he sees himself that way the song we just listened to by Vernon Thompson kind of gave away the, the ending of the book because I didn't know this story. It was a little bit before my time, but the murder of String Bean and his wife just changed Nashville. It just changed the whole atmosphere. How did that the murder change things? Well, it really did. Nashville had already been changing at that time, and it had already gotten rougher and the downtown area where the Ryman Auditorium was had already become a place where people standing in line to go to the show would be propositioned or <laughs> maybe offered drugs or something. And that was sort of not the clientele typically for the Grand Ole Opry at that time. And so really it was in that moment actually when String Bean and his wife were murdered. Uh, that was when the new Opry House was being built away from downtown. In fact, one of the interesting things in writing the book was to go through the, the daily issues of the Nashville, Tennessean newspaper and see that shift from the Ryman Auditorium over to this other space. And it was actually Richard Nixon who uh, helped open up the, the new building. And of course, it was shortly thereafter that all the Watergate stuff happened. So it was a 
pretty interesting time. But anyway, the city had been, it kind of thought of itself as a smaller city, not necessarily having big city problems. But this murder really forced the city to face this fact. And it really changed everything. But prior to this time, you could go to Tootsie's or wherever in, in Nashville, and maybe a fan could get to talk to a country music performer after this. Not so much. Suddenly, high walls were being built around the houses of the performers, and there was a general fear. And in fact, there was another murder that took place not long after this, and people worried that it was maybe there was a serial killer out to kill people in the industry. So it really it changed the city and it changed the country music industry quite a lot. It really created a, a sense of fear. This is, happened in 1973 when uh, String Bean was murdered, but he had seen a lot of changes being born in 1913, I believe. Uh, and your research is quite extensive, and it, it paints such a detailed picture of what life was like when String Bean was born in the Depression. Tell me about Uncle Dave Macon, who was one of the top entertainers uh, back in the 1910s and 20s. Absolutely. Yeah, Stream Bean was born in 1915, 19. and uh, he he grew up uh, listening, of course, to the Grand Ole Opry. I think it was 1925 when the Opry started out as a barn dance show. And, and uh, Uncle Dave Macon, of course, was one of the very first people on it. And, of course, that WSM radio station, as you know, was such a powerful one, and it was boomed out all over the South. And people could listen you know, easily in Kentucky, in that part of Kentucky where he's from, Jackson County, which is kind of close to London, Kentucky, uh, or Corbin around in that area. But uh, anyway, David Aikman was String Bean's real name. And growing up, he listened to the radio and heard this guy on the radio whose name sounded like his own, David Aikman and Dave Macon. And uh, he listened to this, listened on the radio as people did in, in the 1930s. In the case of Dave Macon, was not necessarily the best clawhammer play, banjo player in the world. Wasn't necessarily the best singer, but he was an amazing entertainer. And that was really what I think registered for the, uh, the young David Aikman. His dad already played the, the banjo and he kind of had learned from him. But I think the, the real thing that inspired this young kid was to hear this guy who had this ability to entertain whether in person or really to project that through that radio, which which was something. And it was not something that I think one picks up listening to Dave making records necessarily. They had to tie a pillow on his foot so that the beating of his foot wouldn't sound too much on the recording. I don't know that that vitality comes across quite as well in the recordings, but if you see an old some old footage of him or radio, you really feel that energy. I think that kind of uh, energy is what really hit, uh, you know, a young David Aikman. Talking about the changing of times, back when uh, Uncle Dave Macon was popular, blackface was popular too. Did String Bean? Did it, String Bean ever perform in blackface? He did actually. He did with Charlie Monroe. Uh, Bill Monroe's younger brother was the first uh, sort of big act that. Uh, String Bean was joined up with, and he did. There's actually some photograph, uh, some photographs of him in blackface. Uh, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody the other day who was surprised to hear that in the middle of the Great Depression that was still there. But in a way, David Aikman, and there are some interesting things about this that that String Bean character kind of channels some of the minstrel comedy of the you know it's kind of reworked into a poor white kind of thing, but basically channeled some of that minstrel comedy and 
in some ways there are these African-American forms that are not necessarily minstrel forms, but that play out in his costume and so forth. One of the really interesting people I got to interview uh, for this book was Don Flemons. He really uh, kind of shed a lot of light on some of the ways that that character, that string bean character, kind of sort of translates and, and repackages these African-American forms, not just in the menstrual form, which is obviously far more complicated. It's a white burlesquing of that, but even other ways that this kind of channels in to that character's it's very interesting journey to look at that, actually. Well, it was looked down upon. Uh, blackface, obviously, was looked down upon. Was dressing up as a hillbilly character, was that looked down upon as well? Well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of those early figures, uh, you know, obviously Bill Monroe, both Bill and Charlie Monroe really insisted, particularly Bill, on all of his band members dressing up in the nicest clothing. Strangely, they would walk around in jodhpurs, which was always sort of weird to me. But anyway, they would do that kind of thing. But a lot of those early acts really did not want to be connected with that kind of hillbilly or hayseed image. But they found that from a marketing viewpoint, and I think this is one of the interesting things about country music and maybe the thing about it that sometimes sets it apart from, you know, certainly the folk scene in the 1950s or 60s is that country music Generally speaking, as an industry, I think the performers, if they early on felt like they could they could make a buck, you know, if they could find a way to make some money in the middle of the Depression by playing up that hayseed image, they were okay with doing that. I think they had a lot of conflict about it. I think they didn't really like it, but I think uh, times were such that their business side kicked in. And, you know, I think about somebody like Minnie Pearl, who was really a very, very sophisticated lady living in Nashville. I think she lived in Belle Mead and she, you know, Sarah Cannon, you know, she was a very, very erudite and, and sophisticated person. Uh, and yet her character on stage character, Minnie Pearl was as hayseed as you could get. So I think there was a lot of conflict there and there have been people who've written about that, but I, I, there's probably more to talk about it really. It's interestingly, String Bean embraced that image. And even when he would attach himself to other groups, he would still perform that role, um, which I think is interesting. And, you know, one of the hard things to do really with this book was to get underneath the persona to the person. Uh, in some ways, they're very closely wedded. I'm speaking with Taylor Haygood, author of the new book, String Bean, The Life and Murder of a Country Music Legend. And I did learn quite about String Bean. Like, for instance, he his connection with uh, uh, the Monroe Brothers, a member of uh, Charlie Monroe's band, and how fascinating how Charlie was selling medicine through his music. That's a great story in the book. But what's even better is how String Bean debuted with Bill Monroe at the Grand Old Opry. And you make an interesting point how people think of bluegrass starting with Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, but String Bean was the original banjo player for the Bluegrass Boys. Was it he, really is true. Was he at the... Yeah. So he was at the Grand Old Opry with all those standing ovations that Bill Monroe got. He wasn't there for that very first performance, oh, but okay. uh, he... So he was still with Charlie. <laughs> there was that... In that there was that rival between Charlie and Bill, so he didn't get to be there for that very first performance, but he did... Uh, he made his own debut with... As a Bluegrass Boy. But he was... The, yes, he was the first person playing the banjo, you know, with Bill Monroe. And interesting, it's kind of interesting to go back and listen to those records that were made in Chicago 
to hear kind of how that the sound of the banjo starts to kind of pluck that bluegrass sound into what it's going to become. You know, there are some very interesting ribbony sort of licks that he pulls off at times, but probably the most interesting moments are, are the moments when string bean jumps from a claw hammer style to a two finger picking style. And so that, you know, two finger picking, it doesn't move in quite the same kind of role as that three finger style that obviously Earl Scruggs brings in. If you go and listen to those records and, and watch kind of how the sound develops, it becomes very clear how central string bean is, and, and that was recognized eventually. Well, you also point out in the book, which made clear to me, was that in the 1950s, the sound of country music was changing, and they yes, they tried to become more sophisticated with the Nashville sound and Chet Atkins, which made Bill Monroe's progressive bluegrass music the ipso facto traditional sound of country music. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and that was such an interesting time. You know, country music has this, as you know, this this kind of crisis about every decade or so, you know, where it has to figure out how to how to keep its heart and soul together, but still remain relevant. And it, it precipitates. It's doing it right now. It's right now. I think the industry is trying to figure out, OK, how do we how do we stay traditional, stay country, but yet try to accommodate for example, a Nashville that has changed tremendously in the last 15 to 20 years, totally different population. A lot of people have moved into the place. You know, it's a, it's a very blue city in a red state. It's just a very different place. So how do you accommodate this very different personnel? That was happening, obviously, in the 1950s and 1960s, yes, with the Nashville sound and this conflict. Obviously, rock and roll comes into play. But then the folk scene Pete Seeger, Peter Paul Mary, Bob Dylan, they sort of move a little bit to the, I guess in a way rock and roll and folk, the folk scene kind of move to the left of country music a little bit, although in certain ways folk is, it can move in certain ways to the right a little bit too. Uh, not conservatively, politically necessarily, but just in terms of moving into this more traditional place. And so for somebody like String Bean or Grandpa Jones, trying to navigate that is pretty interesting. Obviously, Earl Scruggs, he felt very at home, I think, uh, in the bluegrass scene and the folk scene. It didn't, I think he felt very at home in Newport, you know. But uh, Bill Monroe, maybe not as much, but Bill Monroe was a consummate business guy. When, when Elvis Presley recorded Blue Moon, he was happy enough to get that royalty check. So he was kind of a protean enough to make those moves. Stream Bean, um, I think, could, couldn't see that. Uh, but he did end up playing blue, uh, not just uh, bluegrass, but also folk festivals, including University of Chicago and, and plenty of others at universities. But it took a while for that to come around for him. I'm speaking with Taylor Haygood, author of the new book, String Bean, The Life and Murder of Country Music Legend. It's a fascinating story also because you do bring in the culture of America and you do uh, an interesting comparison of String Bean to Pete Seeger. And, uh, you know, I've heard some authors say that Pete Seeger kidnapped folk music and made it more political. And so there's a real there is a real line between what Pete Seeger does and what String Bean does. And they're both entertainers. But String Bean went mm. more the entertainment way. And and I guess Pete Seeger went a different direction. Well, it is true. For me, this was one of the most interesting moments is when it, it kind of hit me just how similar these two were. 
you know, they're both playing these Vega number nine tuba phone banjos. Of course, uh, Pete Seeger, when he builds that long neck and puts it on there, it's a, it's a kind of a different instrument, but um, it's, they're both playing basically, they have the same, we'll put it this way, they have the same tone ring on those banjos. They're both playing uh, a lot of the same songs. They play a lot of the same styles and yet they're such worlds apart. And, and I found that to be very fascinating, you know, for Pete Seeger, it, it, he comes at the music from such a different angle. For him, he's kind of an outsider in a way. And then he comes in and, and he says, okay, here's something valuable. And, you know, in the same way that Ernest Hemingway would look around and say, hey, your, your viewpoint is heightened by going into something that's unfamiliar. In a way, Pete Seeger sees things that are just so natural to somebody like Stream Bean, he can't see them. Uh, Pete Seeger's a great entertainer also, and and but he, he's coming at it from such a different angle. Pete Seeger, he finds in the folk music a type of authenticity. You know, he doesn't have to be from Asheville, North Carolina, to go to Asheville, North Carolina and find a, a kind of communion, in a sense, in his heart and his soul and his mind to that music and make it his own and make it authentic. Uh, to me, Pete Seeger is very authentic. In, but but Stream Bean, in a way, is authentic, but in a way inauthentic, because he is playing a role. He does have a persona. It's not realistic. And yet he and yet he's very autochthonous. You know, he comes from the soil. He is from Kentucky. It's a living thing for him. But they're really very interesting kind of mirrored figures. And for me, it was kind of a vortex for me to, to encounter that, that kind of a parallel thing. In a way, they were very... They were very similar, and yet, in a way, completely different. That is a fascinating comparison. And another common thing streaming had with Pete is that they both lived modestly, uh, even though they probably had access to a lot of money. They didn't show it off, although String Bean... He thought it was, I think he thought it was funny that he was this hillbilly that has wads of cash on him. He, he played that as a joke. No, absolutely. He, he uh, started doing this thing. He and his wife, both of them had come of age in the Depression, and, and he and his wife, not only did they carry cash, I, and I think he got, you know, I can't prove this, but I think he probably got the idea to do that from the early pilot of the Andy Griffith show. Uh, you know, I can't prove it, but that's that's what I think may have happened, and and but anyway, and I think early on he didn't even have the cash. Some say that he just had some money on the outside and then paper, uh, kind of just regular paper, added in. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a joke, and a lot of his life was a kind of wry joke. And uh, one of their big things was to buy a Cadillac. They would trade in for a new Cadillac every January the second or whatever, and they would uh, they would keep the mileage over the year. It was a big joke. They would keep them. They would write down the mileage at the end of the year. And that was for their tax, for the taxes, the income taxes. And yeah, that's what they did. And it was, it was part of his personality. He loved practical jokes. Let me take a break here and play a couple of songs of String Bing. I'm going to start with Herding Cattle in a Cadillac, Coupe de Ville. And then I'm going to play Me and My Old Crow. And they, they both have to do with money. So uh, let's hear a couple of songs from String Bing. I've got the finest neighbor that you've ever seen. Got a honey pond and a plenty tree, I'm really doing well. 
Herding cattle in an air-conditioned Cadillac Superville. Is first in the time Eat country ham and biscuits Drinking elderberry wine Three cents a week is all I spend But to get my biggest thrill From a herd of cattle in an air conditioned Cadillac to fulfill Come on, Smile, come on What do you think about it? That's nice Hardly say I'm rich, I'm living like I should Living the life of Raleigh, Raleigh ain't never had this good But I like this kind of living, and I guess I always will From a herding cattle in an air conditioned Cadillac to fulfill Science baffle, also the blue-eyed world. I fish and I get ready, and I love to hunt them squirrels. You'll find me every morning when the sun can roll them hills. Just a herd of cattle in an air conditioned Cadillac Cooperville. Yeah, I'm a herd of cattle in an air conditioned Cadillac Cooperville. You asked for him back. He hauled, haul, he, what, he hauled favorite son, Strange Me, ladies and gentlemen, right here. I used to hunt them old crows, I'm laying all around. Now, hips down on he haul, he's the best friend I ever found. Hear me and that old crow, got a real good thing going. Gets me getting a lot of lace, my pocketbook's growing. Just got old cold fish in this for company. When evening came, I dangled cold, caught more fish in me. Yeah, me and that old crow got a real good thing going. I said five hundred dollars for me, five hundred to my old crow. Hear me not big old crow, got a real good thing going. Helps me get a lot of less, my pocketbook's growing. Hey, 
Hey, I want you to know that we look forward. It's time for your visit. Boys and the nice folks, too. String Bean with two songs. We heard Herding Cattle in a Cadillac Coupe de Ville and Me and the Old Crow. String Bean, the new book by Taylor Haygood, who I'm talking to now. It seems like with the success of Hee Haw, the old-timers String Bean and Grandpa Jones were reaching some new success. Absolutely, yeah. You know, that song, uh, those are two of my favorite of the songs. And, uh, now, me and my old crow, he did end up recording it. In fact, his final album went by that name. And he, interesting about it is, uh, he, I think it's really an interesting observation you make that his career was really starting to make this turn. And I think had he lived, there would have been more innovative music because that final album was really interesting. He brought in some of the old songs like Pretty Polly, but he did his own interpretation of Long Tall Sally, and uh, it was it's really original. It's interesting. Uh, obviously, it's a tragedy that he was murdered, he and his wife, but beyond that, for the, from the musical viewpoint, I believe had he lived that he was actually just coming into his own, even though he was, I guess, entering into the the latter decades of his life maybe but he was going strong there was no drop off by any means much like his buddy grandpa jones they really were growing into their roles quite a lot and it's interesting because they were like a conduit between folk and country because he was he was so friendly with loretta lynn best friends with roy acuff and all the stars of the uh, grand old opry and the, the shock of of String Bean's death just just moved that whole community. He and his wife were had really no enemies, and everybody loved them. And I think one of the most interesting things is to turn on any of those old, you mentioned about YouTube, you turn on one of those YouTube videos and you watch String Bean with any of his peers, any of his fellow uh, performers, and they will all, they all love him. Earl, Earl Scruggs and famously stone-faced kind of guy. When Stream Bean would come on the screen, he would light up. Even some of the younger people, the Stoneman family, that they had come out of a very much a folk background, and Ronnie Stoneman and Donna and the, the whole family. The younger ones did represent something new and young, and this kind of interesting fusion of uh, that I think was possible in the 1960s. That seems unimaginable in our time somehow, but. But they loved Stream Bean. They just loved him. And so uh, here were these two people, Stream Bean and his wife, who were so, seemed very innocent. And I think there was an archetypal kind of thing. I mean, in a way, it's straight out of Joseph Campbell or somebody. It's this archetypal situation of these innocent people who are murdered just brutally and senselessly. And, and there followed then a, a kind of quest, in a sense, to kind of rectify that and to revenge that. And that's kind of that's really what that trial became. And that was part of the impact of it. As I was reading the book early on, uh, when when Streambean was working for Charlie Monroe, I thought that his brother Bill Monroe would not like Streambean because he was playing with his brother. But because he played this clown, he was beyond the band members. He, he in fact he created with with Grandpa Jones for a while. He had his own comedy routine with with Grandpa Jones. So, yeah, he just wanted to make people laugh. Was there any trepidation of putting the uh, the murder on the cover of your book? Well, yes, I, I appreciate that question very much. And I, I would like to comment, too, about Bill Monroe. You, you were mentioning about him and how 
you, you know, that rivalry between Bill and Charlie was so bad. And Bill was so famously prickly and, and held a grudge, you know, he's so bad to hold a grudge. And it was very interesting to me in, in doing the research for this, that when Flat and Scruggs left Bill Monroe, he, he, he went for, I don't know, decades never speaking to them. in backstage in the Opry, which was a very tight quarters, walk right by and not speak to them. And yet he remained Stream Bean's friend the entire time. And it's really a testament to, yeah, Stream Bean wanted people to laugh. He was somebody that brought people together. I think for if anybody reads this book, that's the big thing I hope they can take away from it is here is somebody who, with the world falling apart around him, uh, war and depression and just everything. He was still somebody who he wanted people to come together. He wanted people to be happy. And I, I think that's a great thing. Um, now you asked about it. Did I have trepidation about the, the cover of the book kind of focusing on the murder? And I, I absolutely did. Uh, that was a decision of, made by the press. And I, I, you know, respect that and understand it. And I think the cover is very beautiful, you know, but it did it did cross my mind, I have to say, that because for me, you know, these are two different stories. And there are readers who are completely interested in the, the murder part of it, the true crime side of it. There are people who are much more interested in the, the music side, the biography side, and so forth. And um, I think for me, uh, yeah, I did have some trepidation about it, but I also, um, you know, obviously I... I think uh, the press knows more about how to sell a book than I do. <laughs> After reading it, it makes sense be- because your research into it and 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 the going into the uh, the murderers and, and and the redemption afterwards, and I certainly did enjoy the music part of it. In fact. You end the book, the, I mean, after the epilogue, you have a music in American life list of books. That, mm-hmm. What is that list? It's an incredible list. Uh, that, that is the series of uh, University of Illinois Press, which is a great press. And they do, they have a premier uh, series of books on uh, roots music. And uh, really, American music in a very broad sense, it's just an amazing thing. And they have the original, I believe they published the original Nolan Porterfield uh, biography of uh, Jimmy Rogers. They did one of the first Hank Williams biographies. They've done all kinds of of autobiographies and biographies, books of history on music, uh, banjo stuff, guitar, everything. I mean, it's just a great, great series. And, And for me, it was one of the great honors. You know, when I was working on this book, I thought, I would love for this to be in that series. And and uh, Laurie Matheson, who is just a wonderful director of that press, took the book up enthusiastically, and, and we went through the paces on it. It's something I'm very, very proud of. It, you know, it is a very different kind of writing. It's not an academic book. So most of everything I've done before has been academic. This is not. This is for anybody to read. I enjoyed reading it so much. The details, it brought me back to life in America, uh, surrounding string being the music, the life and murder of country music legend, author Taylor Haygood is on the line. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed And I'm, I'm going to finish with a song. And this kind of changed everything for string being too. And his friend, Grandpa Jones, because Mountain Dew became a hit. They knew what it felt like to have money after this became a hit. And what's unusual for me is that I didn't realize it till I was an adult, but this is a song about alcohol. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it perpetuated that hillbilly stereotype. So what can you do?
sure did. Taylor, thank you so much. Uh, and it's really great talking to you, and I appreciate you writing the book. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure. I appreciate so much you reading it. And uh, I just uh, it's just a pure pleasure to get to talk to you, especially uh, with your background and, and knowledge. And I just appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Holly tree where they lay down a dollar or two Where they drive round the bend and they come back And then they're the jump for that good old Mountain Dew Go to call it that old Mountain Dew And those that refuse it are a few I'll hush up my mug if you fill up a jug With good old Mountain Dew Sweet smell perfume, but to her surprise, when you had it out of lies, there's nothing but that good old Mountain Dew. Well, to call it that old Mountain Dew, and those that refuse it are a few. I'll push up my mug if you fill up my jug with good old Mountain Dew. Sort off and shorty only measures four foot two. But you give him a pint and he thinks he's a giant of that good old Mountain Dew. Better call it that old Mountain Dew. And those that refuse it are few. I'll just my mug if you fill up my jug with good old 